Alleluia, alleluia. I am the first and the last, says the Lord, and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Alleluia. The Holy Gospel is written in the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, beginning at the first verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he, may, he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. This is the Gospel of the Lord. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Sherlock Holmes once remarked to Dr. Watson that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That is also what motivates Professor John Polkinghorne. As a Cambridge physicist, he might be expected to disbelieve such an extraordinary miracle as resurrection which appears to contravene the laws of nature. But in fact, it is the cornerstone of his faith. Reflecting on the remarkable rise of the early church, he concluded something happened to bring it about. Whatever it was, it must have been of a magnitude commensurate with the effect it produced. I believe that was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Only a tiny handful of people have founded immense influential movements. Most of those people shared three vital assets, a charismatic personality, a long life, a fast-growing number of committed followers. Muhammad would be a good example. He died in his 60s after a very energetic life. His following had momentum, lots of people, good organization, a buoyant mood. So it's no surprise to find that Muhammad's charisma 
gave rise to a great movement known today as Islam. The single exception to the long life and growing movement rule is Jesus. He died young, in his 30s. He spent only three years in the public eye and that in a small country under enemy occupation. He stayed local. He didn't write anything down apart from a word or two in the sand. And towards the end, his popularity ran out and his followers ran away, their lofty dreams shattered. To sum up, it was quite impossible for that sequence of events to give rise to a movement of any size or consequence, let alone the largest movement in all history. And yet, it did. As Sherlock Holmes remarked, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. We are not speaking here of proof, just as the existence or non-existence of God cannot be conclusively proved and is therefore for both Christians and atheists a matter of belief, so the resurrection cannot be conclusively proved or disproved. And on both sides, it is ultimately a matter of belief. What is being said, though, is that we have to make sense of the historical facts about the remarkable rise of the early church and that belief in the resurrection makes sense of that story. As John Polkinghorne said, something happened to bring it about. Whatever it was, it must have been of a magnitude commensurate with the effect it produced. More than that, the Christian story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes sense of life itself. For the early church and for Christians ever since, this story enables us to understand life, to make sense of it, to see it as a journey with meaning, purpose, and an ultimate destination which is not death and destruction, but new life and rebirth. Death and resurrection, suffering and salvation. This is the journey which Christians make following in the footsteps of Jesus as we travel through Lent and Easter. While it is a journey which in no way minimizes the reality and pain of suffering and bereavement, it is ultimately a journey of hope, one which leads to new life, where we proclaim that Jesus is alive and death is no longer the end. And as a result, to go on this journey builds resilience and endurance in those who travel this way. As we look at our lives, the difficulties and the challenges we might face, our Christian faith tells us that this is not the end, that instead, change and new life are possible. Indeed, that they will come. The story of Christ's death and resurrection takes us forward into a new life. 
The reality of his presence with us on the way helps us endure and persevere. And the combination of the two brings hope for the future. Whatever we may experience in the here and now, ultimately, love wins. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis set out the series of moves which led him to faith in God using a chessboard analogy. What Lewis described in Surprised by Joy was not a process of logical deduction, A, therefore B, therefore C. It was more like a process of crystallization by which things that were hitherto disconnected and unrelated were suddenly seen to fit into a greater scheme of things. Things fell into place. It was like a scientist who confronted with the many seemingly unconnected observations, woke up in the middle of the night having discovered a theory which accounted for them all. It was like a literary detective confronted with a series of clues who realizes how things must have happened, allowing every clue to be positioned within a greater narrative. In every case, we find the same pattern, a realization that if this was true, then everything else falls into place naturally without being forced or strained. And by its nature, it demands assent from the lover of truth. C.S. Lewis found himself compelled to accept a vision of reality that at that time he did not wish to be true and certainly did not cause to be true. But he finally bowed to what he came to recognize as inevitable saying in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Lewis realized that if Christianity was true, it resolved the intellectual and imaginative riddles that had puzzled him since his youth. He began to realize that there was a deeper order grounded in the nature of God which could be discerned and which once grasped made sense of culture, history, science, and above all the acts of literary creation that he valued so highly and made his life study. And so we have seen that belief in the resurrection not only makes sense of the rise of the early church, but also can make sense of life itself, seeing it as a journey with meaning, purpose, and an ultimate destination of new life and rebirth. This gives us the means of enduring the difficulties and challenges we face now with resilience and endurance because of our belief that this is not the end and that change and new life are possible and will come. As a result, the story of Christ's death and resurrection takes us forward into a new life, 
The reality of his presence with us on the way helps us endure and persevere. The combination of the two brings hope for the future because whatever we may experience in the here and now, ultimately, love wins. That is what made sense to John Polkinghorne and C.S. Lewis and is also what has made sense for millions of Christians over the centuries since that first Easter day. So may we also know Christ's resurrection not only making sense for us, but also making sense of our lives too. Amen.